turn you to uh, page 72, guys, in your Bibles, Exodus 32. If you've not got one of our church Bibles, welcome again. Good to see you, Gene, John, and Bethan. You guys, this is two weeks on the run. It's another week, John. You might be up for being an elder, so just uh, let's see what your diary's doing next Sunday. But no, it's great to have you with us, and um, yeah, especially encouraging when we've got a few of our folks missing this afternoon. I'm going to read all of Exodus 32, all 35 verses, and these aren't any ordinary verses. These are heavy. So I'm going to read it. I'm actually going to just stop in the middle just so we can catch our breath a little bit, and then I'll carry on. Um, but if you've got it, I'm just going to get straight in and pick up in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 2, the golden calf, it's titled. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up and out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's just pause for a minute. Catch your breath. It's going to get worse. Here we go. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty scriptures that we read this afternoon. Father, we thank you that this is just a moment in the history of your people. We thank you that we read these truths in light of the cross and all that we have already sung and confessed this afternoon. And so lead us as we try and understand this passage, lead us to the cross, lead us to see our sin in light of the cross and our forgiveness in light of the cross and the life that we live now and the life that we will live for all eternity in light of the cross. Draw us towards the beauty of your son. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Thank you that these words are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and change us, make us more like him. Less of us and more of him. That's our prayer, Holy Spirit. So help us, we pray, for the glory of the Son. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Amen. Um, When I was a bit younger, and kind of over the last 10, 15 years, um, I've had the the real privilege of traveling to India a few times. Elizabeth has friends out there, and we've been uh, 10 or 11 times to visit out there when plane rides were a lot cheaper than what they are now. And um, we've been out there visiting, we've seen some wildlife as we've been out there. I've also been to Africa and seen some similar wildlife uh, out there. And it's interesting when you're in these two different countries to see how the two different cultures uh, react and engage with wildlife, in particular with snakes. Like I'm sure all of you are like me, hopefully, you hate snakes, they're horrible creatures. 
Um, and I've seen snakes in both of these countries. In India, what's particularly interesting is if you see a snake, and, and over the 11 years, we only saw one. We were in a, a city, but there was one up a tree. And it's interesting that when people see a snake, they all gravitate towards it and they honor it. They, they revere it. They worship it. People were throwing uh, coins on the floor around it. People were gathering around it to make sure that no one would harm it. They were trying to protect it and fence it in a little bit. And they were really celebrating this uh, snake being in the midst of them. Africa, on the other hand, these guys get the, get the right idea. When they see a snake, and the place where I went in Malawi, there were snakes everywhere, big snakes, small snakes. The small snakes were the dangerous ones. Um, and whenever they see a snake, someone shouts out in the village, so everyone's aware of the snake. And uh, whoever's quickest to grab a spade, a shovel, or a machete, they launch at the snake and they cut the thing to bits, which, in my opinion, is the right way to treat snakes. I'm sure we might get some... Um, opposition from animals rights or whatever but there we go they did the right thing they saw the danger they they uh, kind of cried out for help and they finished the thing off and what you see in those two cultures is actually the two approaches that we can make towards sin that is the big theme through this passage it's sin it's scattered all over this passage and really what God wants us to do and what we see buried within chapter 32 here is a clear message and the message is this sin is deadly don't play with it like none of us would give a child a snake would we jesus actually tells us not to but for even if we didn't hear those words we would know not to give children snakes they're not toys they're not pets and in the same way we don't play with sin sin will carry us into eternal judgment if we embrace it And even if we are born again, if we're Christians, if that judgment has already been taken by Jesus on the cross, sin still lurks in our flesh and it kind of hides and it will come out and attack us a lot of the times when we least expect it. I want us just to work through seven truths about sin this afternoon. And that really is the first one. It's that sin hides in the shadows. It hides in the shadows. Think about the context of chapter 32. Think, think about the timing of this part of the Exodus story. Like if we zoom right out and think of all of the Exodus story that we've walked through and think of uh, just the glorious work that God has done in liberating his people from slavery in Egypt and then uh, giving them the Passover, this wonderful celebration as he saved them from the plague, saved them from death and then bringing them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, passing the Red Sea, saving them, calling them his people. They're going to be his people. He's going to be their God. And he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments. He's given them water. He's given them food. He's provided for all that they've needed. Like this is the real high point of the people of Israel. And, and if we kind of zoom just into the chapter here, what have we just been reading in the, in the couple of chapters before God gifts them the tabernacle and this wasn't just a, a tent that they built in the desert this was God's presence with them like no one since Eden no people group has ever had God that close with them he wants to dwell with them he wants to be with them and so he gives them the tabernacle he gives them the priests which we saw last week and he gives them rules so that they can engage with God the sacrificial system so that they can make atonement for their sin this is the high point of God's people and yet we find them grinding down their gold and melting it into a pathetic idol and we can kind of read through the story and we might laugh at it we might think it's so stupid and I wonder as you read through which, may, which character you might identify with 
in our pride, probably we rush to Moses, don't we? We're like, oh yeah, we'd be that guy. No, no, no. Guys, we're at the foot of the mountain, grinding down our gold and making idols. It's often in our highest highs, folks, that we, deep, we fall into our deepest sins. Israel had everything. God was about to be dwelling in their midst, and yet they sank so low. The Apostle Peter says this in his first letter, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter says, watch out. The devil is is looking to, to launch an attack and he's stalking the ground. He's not kind of sitting there, obviously, in front of you. It's not like you can see him coming. It's not like sin kind of knocks politely on the door and says, is it okay if I come in? No, it lurks in the shadows. The devil prowls like a lion. So can I just say to, to us, in the context that we are knowing the lives that we're living at the moment, folks, be watchful because I know a lot of us are living well at the moment. We're enjoying life. Newly married, new jobs, good health, receiving the affirmation of others. Peter says, watch out. Sin is hiding in the shadows. For each of these seven points, I just want to give us a question, something to consider as we consider the reality of sin. And the question in light of sin hiding in the shadows is, what are the shadows in your life? Where is he prone to to kind of skulk around? Where is the the devil prone to just prowl in the long grass? We, We know where those areas are. We know where we are prone to wander. Sin hides in the shadows. And next, sin distorts our vision. We've seen, haven't we, through this book so far that there's been shadows and echoes of Eden. And picking that up as we've been working through, just little glimpses back to, to Eden and the beauty that Adam and Eve had in Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And in Exodus 32 here, we have another uh, kind of a, a bridge back to Eden. The golden calf, the story of the golden calf here is a shadow of not Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3. It's a shadow of the fall of humanity. God created a new humanity with his people Israel. He birthed them out of Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, created a new humanity. But just like Adam and Eve, Israel want their own God. And just like Adam, do you remember when uh, Adam and Eve sin and God comes to Adam in the garden? Um, what does he do? He blamed Eve, remember? Oh, it wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave me. Remember Adam saying that? He totally throws Eve under the bus. And husbands, we do that all the time. And just like Adam threw Eve under the bus, did you, did you notice how Aaron did the same with Israel? He, he's like, it wasn't me, Moses. Look at, at verse 24. Like, it's just so stupid what he says. Moses comes to Aaron a little bit like God coming to Adam in the garden. And he, he wants Aaron just to tell him what's, what's happened. Like, How on earth has this happened? Like, in light of everything that God's done, how have we ended up with a golden calf here, Aaron? And listen to what he says. Okay, like he he admits that that he had a conversation with them and he said to them in verse 24, he said, let anyone who has gold take it off. And then listen to how stupid this is. They gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Uh, Just like magic. I just just did that, you know, who knows, Moses, just out of the fire walked this, this calf. Like, how stupid is Aaron. We know he was far more involved than that. In verse four, we see that he's there literally shaping the calf, fashioning the calf. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen 
photos or illustrations or, or paintings of what this scene looked like. Uh, you see a picture of the, the golden calf. Have you ever seen one like an artist impression? And what we always see is this beautiful looking gold statue, nice and smooth and shining and big, big meaty thing. That isn't what it would have been like. They're in the desert. Like to make something like that, you need a, a, like an industrial sized furnace. Picture more here, like, you know, when we were kids and we had pottery lessons in primary school and we'd kind of, we'd get a bit of clay and we'd make something up and we'd be so proud of what we've made. We've made a cup or a sheep or whatever it is. And we take it home to our parents, like, so like, oh, look what I've made. And our parents are kind of trying to figure out what that thing is. And they probably just, that's what we're talking about here. They just melt together all these bits and bobs of jewellery that they can find. And Aaron's there kind of trying to fashion it. He's no artist, is he? He's a priest. He's trying to fashion it the best he can into this, into this calf. It's pathetic looking. And not only that, just like think about what they're doing. They come to Aaron and they say they want a God to worship and they make it. They are worshipping the thing that they have made. Actually, you see that as a thread all the way through Scripture. Isaiah has the same picture. He, he comes to Israel and he says, there's a guy there with a piece of wood fashioning a God out of a piece of wood. And he's like, guys, just step back for a minute and just see what you're doing. Just see how stupid it is what you're doing. You are creating your own gods and you're bowing down to the stick. And you're bowing down to this lump of gold that you've made. Sin is just, idols are just, a cheap imitation of God. See, what's happened here is sin has really distorted their vision. It's, it's made them lose their perspective. They know that God is good. He is gracious. He is kind. He is coming to dwell in their midst. And yet they've just lost their vision. They've lost their perspective. And they've stumbled into foolishness. And folks, we all do the same. When we engage in sin, when we take hold of our idols, we do exactly the same. We've lost our perspective. We stop seeing how great and glorious God is and we fall into the same foolishness that Israel do here. We worship created things. Folks, we try and satisfy our souls with the equivalent of excrement when God has laid on a banquet for us in his character and in his works. Sin distorts our vision and the question I'd ask us then is if you're engaging in sin, have you forgotten how stupid that is? How stupid your sin is? How stupid your idolatry is in light of all that God has shown himself to be? And the next one we see is this. Sin really is sugar-coated lies. Just listen to what Israel say in verse four again. Aaron receives all the gold from uh, everyone who's got it. He, he fashions it into this, this calf with a graving tool. And then the people of Israel say this. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So question, is that true? Did this lump of gold bring them out of Egypt? No, of course it didn't. That's a lie. It's not truth. God brought them out of Egypt. But this is classic sin. Sin parades as truth when really it is a pack of lies. And that is always how sin works. The Apostle Paul explains it like this in Romans 1. He says that humanity are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. 
He goes on to say we worship the created thing rather than the creator. And just think of Israel in this moment, in in this kind of specific moment, as they're bringing in all of their gold. What had they done earlier that morning? Anyone? They'd been out to gather manna. Remember what manna is? God's gracious provision to them. They're hungry and God says, it's okay, I'll give you food. Trust me. And so before they hand their gold over to Aaron, they've been out collecting in the goodness of God, filling their bellies with the providence of God. The evidence of God's good character and his work and grace was all around them. And not only that, the the pillar of cloud and fire was with them. Can you just see the stupidity of sin in light of that? It's obvious to us. It's obvious as we read the passage. And folks, my prayer is that the stupidity of our sin would also be clear to us this afternoon. How we lose perspective on God's power, his provision, his presence. And instead, we stumble into believing the lie. A lie that is, whether it's a person, an object, or a desire that we have. A lie that that fools us into believing that that thing will give us the security or the comfort or the approval that we crave. That's the lie that our idols tell us, that if you just take hold of that thing, you'll get the comfort that you desire. If you just take hold of that thing or that person, or if you just engage in that desire, even though you know it's wrong, you'll get the contentment, you'll get the security that you need. And so we believe, when we believe those lies, just like the snake in the tree, we we protect our idol, we fence it in, we feed it. And all the while, it ends up controlling us. So here's the question for, for this truth. What lie about sin are you believing? With whatever idol you're taking hold of, what is the lie that you are believing? Here's the next thing that we see. Sin wants to make a home with us. Like, I don't know whether you've like, read the story or considered it and just wondered, why, why a cow? Like, why would, why would they make a cow? Why wouldn't they make, like, a superhuman, like, a Marvel-looking character or, I don't know, like, a pyramid? Why a cow? Why have they, they gone for a cow? Well, it's interesting, like, the reason fundamentally why they've made an idol, you see it in verse 1, they're being impatient. They're complaining, they're saying, you know, Moses is gone, where is he? He's taking too long. Like, okay, let's, let's make our own God. And that's the facade for their sin, they're making excuses for what they're about to do because they think that Moses has, has been away for them, from them too long. But actually, God's reflection on their attitude is slightly different. In verse 8, he says this. As he's talking to Moses, he says, my people, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So this wasn't the sin that they're engaged in. And it isn't something that they've kind of considered for a long time. And they've been weighing it up and just, you know, thinking, oh, where's Moses? It's, it's getting a bit too long. No, God says, no, they have turned to sin quickly without much consideration. Like Moses actually has only been up the mountain for 40 days. So it's not like he's been away for a long time. And really what you see in just this dynamic here is that idolatry doesn't take long to to find a home in our hearts. It moves quickly. Like things escalate quickly here. Like this picture here is a little bit like, you know when you, I do this all the time, you know when you get a little loose thread on your jumper? Us guys do this a lot, I think, don't we? Like, you just can't help it. You're like, oh, yeah, I'll sort that out. And I'll sort it out by pulling it. 
And so you pull it thinking it's going to snap and it doesn't. And so you pull it a bit more and until someone wiser comes along and says, you just need to cut it off. We do that, right? Like that's the picture here. Like they keep pulling it and pulling it when really when that first temptation came, they should have just cut it off and walked away. But they didn't. Now, the reason that they chose a cow, it's actually a bull. As you read on through scripture, you see it's a bull that they try and make. The reason that they make a bull is because um, the nations around them, like don't, when you think of Israel in the Old Testament, don't think that they live in isolation. Like they were familiar with the nations around them. They lived in Egypt for generations. They knew about the other foreign nations around them. They traveled through, they'd heard about them. They probably read about them. And the reason they choose a bull is because the bull was an object of worship for those nations around them. And so what happens is Israel see the other nations around them worshipping this bull and things seemingly going well for them. And they come to Aaron and they see, they see that worship over there. They see things going well and they come to Aaron and says, we want, we want what they've got. We want some of that. So give us our own bull. And we all do the same. We look to the world, even though we know we are separate, we are are different. We are people who God has called to be countercultural. We are people who are passing through this world, sojourners, exiles, but we just can't help looking out. And we look to the world and we look and see the idols of the world. And we see how seemingly life is going for people who are embracing those idols. Whether it's power, sex, money, comfort, whatever it is. We see how, how well seemingly life is going and we look at it and we think, yeah, I, I want a bit of that. I want some of that. And so we bring that idol home with us and embrace it. And before long, they've moved into our lives with no sign of leaving. Folks, the, the city that we live in, this isn't a judgment on our city. This is the same for any city, any kind of urban context. I don't know whether this is the same for you guys where you live, but when we go to bed at night, like, we all lock our doors, don't we? Yeah. Do you have to do that, John and Jean, where you are as well? There you go. Even in Portadown, you need to lock your door. And that is a result of the brokenness of the world, the broken world that we live in. We lock our doors to keep evil out. Why wouldn't we do the same with sin? Keep the doors of our hearts closed to keep out the evil and wickedness and the brokenness that is out there from invading our hearts and making a home. Folks, in light of knowing what sin is, and we'll see in a minute how depraved it is and how much it costs God to deal with, we shouldn't even just be turning the lock, we should be barricading the doors of our hearts shut to keep those idols out. Sin wants to make a home in our lives, folks. So here's the question. Are we making it easy? Are we leaving that door open for idols to come and sit on our couch and eat our food and make a home in our hearts? Here's the next thing that we see. Sin is committing spiritual adultery. Idolatry, falling in love with with the things that fall in love with, with anything other than God in terms of making that the object of our ultimate worship, that is adultery. Like think of the commitments that God has made with Israel so far through the book of Exodus. 
God has made, remember, he's made a covenant with them. And we talked about how that is a picture of marriage. We celebrated the covenant of marriage with these guys just a few weeks ago. And that is not something that Matthew and Rebecca can just walk out of. That is permanent. It is sealed. It is rooted in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's the same with the, the covenant that God makes with his people. It's just like a marriage. And just a few uh, chapters before, we saw God giving his people the Ten Commandments. And can you remember what, what the people said? They, they received the commandments and they said, Whatever you want us to do, God, we will do it. And just weeks later, they've had enough of their faithful husband and they've turned their back on him. Like, it's weeks later at most. It's probably days later. They've said, yes, Lord, whatever you want, we will do. They've seen the beauty of the covenant that God has made, sealed in blood. Remember that picture? And within days... They've turned their back on him. Like this is like a wife cheating on their husband when they're still on their honeymoon. I don't know whether you've had the pain of witnessing someone, um, someone um, being wrapped up in adultery. Before they are found out, the husband or the wife, um, what they do, the adulterer pays lip service to the marriage. They fake the love. They fake the commitment. They sit at the dinner table with their wife and they say thank you for that lovely meal and they hang the washing out. And all the time they're sleeping with someone else behind their back. See, in verse 5 of chapter 32, you get a picture of spiritual adultery. In verse 5, you see that Aaron has made this pathetic looking idol. And then he places it in front of an altar which they build to God. They build it to the Lord. And then he inaugurates a feast for the Lord. He says they're going to have a a festival for the Lord. They're going to bring offerings to these gods. And this is the picture. You have an altar made for God, Yahweh. And then behind the altar you have this pathetic looking lump of gold which they worship. And the next day they come out and they offer sacrifices to them both, a peace offering and a burnt offering. And they have this great festival where they worship both of these gods for for bringing them out of Egypt. And they celebrate both of these idols, paying lip service to to the real true creator God who really liberated them from slavery. But all the while wanting to have all the benefits from this stupid, pathetic lump of gold. And at the end in verse 6, It reads this, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play as they have this festival. Now we read that and we think, oh, that sounds really nice. That sounds like a nice party that I'd want to go to, sitting down, eating and drinking and rising up to play. The Hebrew of rising up to play is they had an orgy. That's what they did. Defiled themselves sexually before the altar of God. Brothers and sisters, sin is serious. It's not just that we sin against each other. It's that we turn our back on our creator. It's that we lose perspective of who he is and what he has done and believe the lies that we would worship creation rather than the creator and embrace idols when really they just want to kill us and lead us into patterns of sin that Okay, they might not look physically like that on the outside, but internally it's the same. 
committing spiritual adultery on our faithful husband, Jesus. So here's the question. Sin is committing spiritual adultery. Do you see the seriousness of your sin? Do you see it for the, for the weighty reality that it is? Do you see that sin is like committing adultery on our faithful husband, Jesus? He's done nothing wrong. He's always and only and ever perfect. <coughs> Here's the next truth. Sin leads to the just judgment of God. Because of the seriousness of sin, because of the weight of sin, because of how disgusting and disgraceful and distasteful it is, because it is spiritual adultery, God responds in an accurate and a fair way in light of that. In verses 9 and 10, you see that God comes to Moses while they're still up the mountain and says, listen, you can't see it. You're going to see when you get to the bottom of the mountain, but I can see it. They've created an idol and they're worshipping it. And I can't stand still and do nothing. They have turned their backs on me. And so I'm going to consume them in my anger. I'm going to swallow them up in my fury. I'm going to pour out my wrath on them because they have sinned against me. And that is the right and just judgment of God. He says to Moses, you're the only one who's going to escape. I'm going to obliterate them all and I'll just fulfill my promise through you. Except he doesn't. Because Moses steps in. In verse 10, God says this, Let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now we read that as a bit of a statement from God. This is what I'm going to do. Braxley can also be read as an invitation for Moses. Leave me alone, Moses, because I'm going I'm to burn them up. But you can also read it like this. If you don't leave me alone, I'm going to burn them up. And so Moses doesn't leave God alone. He stays and he intercedes for God's people. And in verse 14, you get one of the most beautiful verses that would be spoken over God's people. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That is a beautiful truth in light of what they've just done. God relents. Moses comes and he petitions God. He reminds God of the promises that he's made. He reminds God of his character. He pleads and he begs and he petitions God. And Moses' prayer changes the course of history. It makes a difference for these people. It brings about the future of God's people. And it isn't that Moses somehow managed to, to, to turn God's, God's mind. It isn't that, that God, God changed his mind at all. God is sovereign. For he sovereignly chooses to act in accordance to the prayers of his people. And because of Moses' prayer, he relents. And it's not that Moses comes to God and he's like, I think you're being a bit harsh. I don't think you should do that. You, you know, give them a slap on the wrist, but don't go that far. Like, don't burn them up. It isn't that Moses thinks that God has overstepped in the mark here. God's anger burns against his people in verse 10, as we just read. But Moses' anger bends against them as well. Both Moses and God see that the people are ready for judgment. Remember what Moses does? He goes down, he sees the calf, he grinds it up, throws it over the water and makes them drink it. And when he sees the bull, he throws the Ten Commandments on the floor and they shatter. That's not because he's 
uncontrollable in his anger. That's because he sees that the covenant has been broken. And so visually he shows them. And he doesn't stop there in verse 25 to, 30, uh, 25 to 28. Moses instructs the Levite priests, the ones who have remained faithful to God. He says, take up your swords and go and kill those that have done this sin. And, and they strike down 3,000 of the sinners. And that might sound barbaric, but it is a vivid picture of the result of sin and rebellion to God. God hates sin because it's spiritual adultery. He's angry at it and he will judge all of it with the fury and the wrath that it deserves. The right judgment, the right penalty for our sin, for their sin is death and eternal separation. And so here's the question. Do you see that your sin deserves judgment? Do you see it for the serious thing that it is and do you see that it is right for God to judge it? And that the right judgment is death. Praise God for this last point that we see in the passage. There is mercy for the sinner. There is mercy for the sinner. You see, sin never has the last word for God's people. The chapter ends with one of the most beautiful pictures that we have read so far in this book. Let me read it to us from verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Moses comes to God, and he petitions again for the people. Did you hear how far he was willing to go? Moses has this picture of a book that God has. And in this book are written the names of all of those who on the day of judgment will be welcomed in by Jesus. This is in the New Testament. The writers call it the book of life. It's a register of all of God's people. Those who have been saved from the judgment that is due for their sin. And Moses looks on sinful Israel. He sees what they've done. He's heard the noise of the music of the orgies. And he comes to God and he makes God an offer. Rub my name out and let them take my place. See, in that moment, Moses is offering to take the judgment for their sin for them. But he can't because even though the favour of God is on him, he's still a sinner. He can't make atonement for their sin. He isn't a perfect human. But Jesus was. God says clearly in verse 33 that his judgment has to fall on sin. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Humanity will be held responsible for their sin. And judgment comes in part to Israel in verse 35. God sends a plague onto the guilty sinners. But that is just a taster of what is to come. But the full weight of judgment is postponed. 
But it is coming. God is clear in verse 34. He says, I will visit their sin upon them. Judgment is coming. But God is love. God is mercy. He loves these people. He has been gracious towards them and he will continue to be gracious towards them. And so for God's people, the time of the full and furious wrath of God, it came to them thousands of years later at the cross. Moses pleads for forgiveness from God over his people and at the cross, so does Jesus. Jesus pleads with the Father that he would forgive his people. But unlike Moses, Jesus was the perfect human. And so his offer to God was accepted. His atoning sacrifice in his body was accepted. He takes our place just like Moses desired and he dies in our place. And on Good Friday, as Jesus dies on the cross, it looks as if, if, as if Jesus' name has been removed from the list of all of those who will be citizens of heaven. As he bears the weight of our sin in his death. And instead our names are written in. But on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus showed that actually as he rose from the grave and then ascended in his ascension to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, he wasn't just to be a citizen of heaven, he was to be the king of heaven. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we read a promise for God's people that our names, if we are God's people, will never be blotted out. Jesus has secured them in his blood. And when we die and we enter into the eternal presence of God, Jesus will welcome us in. He will acknowledge us as his brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of God. Praise God, folks, there is mercy for the sinner. So how should we respond to that? How do we respond to this crazy story? Well, let me just leave us with these three things. Firstly, we need to take sin seriously. We need to be savage against it. See that picture of the Levite priests? Moses said, pick up your swords and go and, and, go and get rid of sin. Go and slaughter it. Don't hold back. And there is a gruesome picture on the fields that would have been covered in manna that morning. 3,000 corpses spread across, across the camp. Pick up your sword and wage war against your sin. Brothers and sisters, pick up your sword as in the word of truth and wage war against your sin. And be savage. Don't let any of it remain. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we do that? How are our minds transformed by the power of the Spirit through his word? We have no hope of putting sin to death, folks, unless we are saturating ourselves with God's word. We need to take sin seriously. And secondly, Folks, we need to plead for the sinners around us. We were just chatting outside before some of us and that picture of Moses, the extent that he was willing to go on behalf of the people that he loved. I don't think I would ever, ever be able to say that. God, Paul does it as well, doesn't he? Paul prays that he would be accursed on behalf of his people. Moses pleads with God that his name will be blotted out of the name of the book of life on behalf of 
That's a challenge, mate. Do I love my neighbours that much? Do I love my friends, my family that much? Folks, I don't think we'll ever get to that point and that's okay. But even if we had a fraction of the desperation that Moses has for the lost, a fraction of the desperation that Paul has for his brothers, I think we transform this community. We need to plead for the sinners around us and finally we need to praise God that our sins have been atoned for. The one has come who, whose offer of atonement was accepted. That Jesus, the perfect human, died on the cross and took all of the judgment for our sin. All of it. Past, present and future. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how disgraceful the sin is that you are embracing at the moment. If you are a child of God, Jesus has paid the price. He has forgiven you for it already. And let that be your motivation to let go of it, to flee from it, to take up your sword and be brutal with it and put it to death by the power of the Spirit for the love of Jesus. We need to take sin seriously. We need to plead for sinners around us. But let's celebrate. Jesus has come and stood in our place and atoned for our sin.